Thank you very much for taking the time to watch this short seminar and thank you very much to Fela and Fubble for supporting our family campaign over the years and for giving me this platform to engage with your good selves. My name is Kieran McArch. I'm the grandson of John and Kathleen Irvine, two of the many victims of the McGurk's Bar Massacre of 4th of December 1971. My grandmother Kathleen was one of 15 civilians who were murdered that night. Among the dead were two children. My grandfather John was very lucky to escape with his life, but he escaped badly injured and he suffered many years thereafter, along with the other survivors too. At that time in our history in the north of Ireland, the McGurk's Bar Massacre was the single greatest loss of civilian life in any murderous attack since the Nazi Blitz of Belfast a generation before. Pro-state British extremists had bombed the pub. A young newspaper boy saw them do it and saw them escape in a car. All of the evidence, including other witness testimony, proved that the bomb had been placed in a doorway outside the bar and the bar was attacked. Nevertheless, before we buried our loved ones, the British state buried the truth. In a massive disinformation campaign involving the RUC police force, the British Army, the British Intelligence Services, and both governments at Stormont and Westminster, the British state conspired to blame the McGurk's Bar bombing on the innocent victims in the bar. In doing so, they criminalised innocent civilians, including my grandparents, and they allowed the true perpetrators go free. And those perpetrators ended up killing many more civilians. I'm also author of the book The McGurk's Bar Bombing and founder of the charity Paper Trail, which is funded by Peace Four and Victims and Survivor Service to offer free advocacy support and legacy archive research to victims and survivors of the conflict. So I will bring you up to date with some of the battles that we have had to fight since the publication of the book in 2012. I will also discuss some of the discoveries that we have made during this period and publish some startling new evidence of state cover-up and collusion. I also aim to name the person whose dirty fingerprints are all over the heinous McGurk's bar lie. In my book I published a raft of critical new evidence from British archives which proved the innocence of the victims and tracked the flow of disinformation back to the police. I proved that the Chief Constable at the time and head of RUC Special Branch deliberately lied to and misled the governments of Northern Ireland and Britain, and indeed the General Officer Command in the British Army in the North. The police lied that two of the victims were members of the Irish Republican Army and that a bomb that they were carrying exploded prematurely. But I also proved that the same General Officer Command had been informed by a British Army bomb expert within 12 hours of the attack that the bomb had been placed outside. So they knew fine rightly that our loved ones were innocent. They had no foundation for their lies and they still don't. I examined reasons how and why the British state would manufacture such horrific lies, which took in an examination of British counterinsurgency and one General Sir Frank Kitson, a British military strategist of repute and brigadier in charge of the British Army in Belfast at the time of the explosion. To some members of our community he is a military hero and to others a director of terrorism. In 93, he is alive today. In simple terms, basic tenets of his counterinsurgency policies are information and contact, which led me to include new evidence of the formation of information units during his tenure, which controlled army PR, propaganda, psyops and disinformation under the umbrella of British information policy. I also examined the development of the military reaction force, a covert extra-legal British special force unit which ran surveillance, gathered intelligence, ran agents and killed civilians.
By the time of the book's publication in 2012, direct reference to Brigadier Frank Kitson, his covert units and the McGurk's Bar Massacre was elusive. I knew where that information might be, but of course I wasn't getting any help from either the British Ministry of Defence or the British Historical Investigation units that were in place in the North at that time. I'd even tracked down a former leader of the Military Reaction Force, retired Brigadier James Alistair McGregor, to his home in Kent and to his workplace in London in 2010. He obviously didn't want to initiate contact either. Nevertheless, I thought it was important to lay down a marker in my book because this was the direction of travel for the research. Many of our families, including myself, believed that the British Army and British intelligence services had foreknowledge of the attack and could have prevented it. I believe we proved collusion after the fact, but collusion prior to the explosion was always going to be difficult to prove. Again, I know where information confirmant or denying that will be, but the British state will battle me for it at every single turn. In 2011, the Office of the Police Ombudsman had shamefully disagreed. It found investigative bias against the police but stopped short of collusion. In doing so, the Police Ombudsman moved his own goalposts of what amounted to collusion and what he used for a finding of collusion at the same time regarding the Claudia atrocity. The Chief Constable of PSNI, Matt Baggett, within hours denied even this central finding. His successor, though, had to rule over and accept this finding during one of her many court battles against the police. And we have been in court continually since then, trying to access information and seek a proper investigation. We had to judicially review the police to get access to the historic inquiry team's report into the McGurk's Bar atrocity, as the HET wouldn't hand it over. When we got to the fourth or fifth version of the HET report, we lost count. It was nonsense as expected, so we have been embroiled in a judicial review to get it quashed. So, as expected, we had to fight to get it released. And then we had the fight to get it thrown in the bin. That battle continues to this day, but will benefit from the archive discoveries I've since made and discussed later on. Due to the service journey we had to suffer with the police and its failure to attend to the evidence we produced, we made a new complaint to the Office of the Police Ombudsman, but this time about modern policing and asked for a supplementary review to account for all this new evidence. In four and a half years, the Office of the Police Ombudsman has yet to complete that complaint or updated report and has apologised a number of times for its failures, so that is going to end in court as well. All of these failed historic investigations have yet to answer our simple requests for information and have ignored a mountain of new evidence which we have produced. All of the failed historic investigations allege that the authorities did not know where the scene of the explosion was and did not connect the neighbouring Gembar as a target as it was alleged to have allegiances to the official IRA. All of the field investigations denied that there was any British Army presence in the area despite how militarised New Lodge was and how the British Army had been hunting for three prisoners that had escaped in the area two days before the attack. All of the field investigations sought to excuse the botched police investigation even though I had proved in my book that the police created the McGurk bar lie and the head of the police lied to government about our loved ones. But the Attorney General has failed to offer us a new investigation and a new inquest despite this mountain of new evidence. That decision will be tested at judicial review now too. 
So we've been fighting running battles with every facet and organ of the state, including even the British Ministry of Defence and National Archives and the Information Commissioner's Office. All the while though, since the publication of the book, we have still been finding some magnificent historic information which is fed into the legal cases. Here's a review of just some of these from three British Army logs, including some startling new evidence. We've obviously been similarly bladed with ongoing information battles as well as the field investigations and long drawn out court cases. All these fit neatly with the British state and PSNI strategy for dealing with the legacy of the past in our country. Denial, delay and death. They deny guilt until they cannot any longer. They delay campaigns for as long as possible, even in costly court battles, and they hope that family campaigners go to their grave. We have lost half a dozen family members in as many years. Even if we are successful via freedom of information and public interest test, there is the ubiquitous assertion that crucial files are missing or weighted without explanation. My discovery of the Headquarters Northern Ireland files for December 1971 is a case in point. The request for very specific information resulted in a two-year battle with the British Ministry of Defence, National Archives and the Information Commissioner's Office. Appeal and denial of appeal finally resulted in an information tribunal in London where I faced three barristers. Thanks to Rights Watch UK, I was lucky to have secured pro bono support from a top Freedom of Information Act barrister or I would not have been able to afford any of it. It was an important partial win for us, but illustrative of what families have to endure. We secured 20 heavily redacted logs from a file of 350 plus pages. One serial proved that the British Army knew the bomb was placed outside the bar, so critical evidence which smashed what we had been told before. Nevertheless, other significant evidence was missing for the day of the McGurk's Bar attack, or was withheld from us. Neither myself nor my team knew exactly why, as the legal arguments were held behind closed doors. Closing arguments were in public, but only summarised. The information was withheld for two reasons. Number one, national security as we expected. And number two, protection of an agent informer. This in itself was critical information, but we were stopped from accessing the detail. To put it into context, one of our lawyers estimated the cost to the public person fighting the release of information nearly 45 later at this stage. He conservatively estimated the cost in court time solicitors and barristers for the MOD TNA and ICO and 200 hours of MOD research and redaction time at a quarter of a million pound at least. But that one serial, that one log from thousands of logs was absolutely critical and that approved the British military and Royal Ulster Constabulary knew where the seat of the explosion was. It proved that an ammunition technical officer or ATO revisiting the site the following morning was convinced that the bomb was placed in the entranceway as the area is cratered and clearly was the seat of the explosion, in his own words. This is a completely correct assessment by a British Army bomb expert but one that was hidden from the families and public. It was not for PR as was exclaimed in capitals, so the critical information was to be kept secret and not published. Even the original inquest was not told about it as the state sought to bolster its own lies. The preceding ATO report to Brigade goes into more exact detail. The bomb was placed in the ground floor entrance at the corner of the building that faces the junction, exactly where the paper boy saw it placed. 
the PSNI, HET, Office of the Police Ombudsman, never found this critical information and it completely overturns what each says about the location of the bomb as it proves that the bar was attacked, as witnessed, and the people inside the bar were completely innocent. We were also informed by successive historical investigations that the British Army and RUC never considered that the Gem Bar was the original target for the bombers. The British Army actually raided and searched the Gem Bar less than 48 hours before the McGurk's Bar explosion. It screened all of the customers and arrested six of them for further questioning. The reason is simple as it appears in the British Tactical Headquarters battalion logs I've just secured for the resident battalion, the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers or 2 RRF. Brigade writes in military shorthand that the Gem Bar was the alleged headquarters of the 1st Battalion of the official IRA, located in North Belfast. The British military logs, a few minutes after the McGurk's Bar attack, then connect the Gem Bar to the explosion. The reason is redacted and maybe more sinister. Or it may be as simple that they have hidden the name of Cahill Goulding as the British military in these files refer to the Goulding IRA for the officials and the Brady IRA for the provisionals, Brady being Roy O'Brady. This simple, obvious intelligence again overturns the assertions by the historic investigations by the likes of Historical Inquiries Team, PSNI and Police Ombudsman's Office. It also highlights the fact that British military intelligence considered the Gem Bar to be one of the most important official IRA targets in North Belfast and that it had targeted it two nights before the Loyalists of the UVF did. Why was it not being watched that Saturday night though? Especially as the British military were alerted to IRA bomb runs in the city centre for a second weekend in a row and still on high alert for escaped prisoners. Again, we were told by successive historical investigations that there were no British Army troops in the area save for those in Glenravel and those dealing with intercommunal trouble in the Spamount area of New Lodge. New files I have discovered overturns this. We had long contested how bombers could travel and wait at a bomb target without being stopped or seen by the British military at this particular time. Witnesses confirmed the news reports that the city centre area, especially the north side, was in lockdown due to the threat of IRA bombs and the search for escaped prisoners. Then the area went quiet and the bar was attacked. If we believe the confession of Robert James Campbell, they waited in the area to get at the gem bar but couldn't, no doubt because of witnesses at the door. They then made the fateful decision to drive around the corner and bomb the nearest pub, McGurk's Bar. After sitting there for an opportunity, they lit the bomb, watched by a paper boy, and escaped down George, Great George Street and across York Street. They then turned into a side street and abandoned the car. A car due to pick Campbell up, drove by the bombers and got offside. The three then walked to the second pickup across Great Patrick Street, close to St. Anne's Cathedral. Successive investigations categorically said that there was no British Army in the area to report on the car or the bombers, so they easily escaped, even though they abandoned the car a few hundred yards away. The files I found have now demolished that. There's a reference in them to a new vehicle checkpoint operation called Closed Door, deployed an hour and three quarters before the explosion. Closed Door was ordered by 39 Brigade to produce an inner ring of VCPs to establish control of Irish Catholic West Belfast. There was no trouble in West Belfast at the time to warrant control of West Belfast unless the deployment is reasoned elsewhere. 
the logs actually record trouble in the north side of the city where the British Army were still looking for escapees. From the map of closed door locations I have, this does indeed place a VCP stranglehold on Irish Catholic West Belfast but leaves two main arterial routes in or skirting West Belfast free, both in Protestant areas leading into town, Shankill Road and the Crumlin Road. Around this time, Campbell was being tasked to a bomb team in the Orange Hall on the Shankill Road so they would have had a clear run in. Could be coincidental or circumstantial, but definitely fortuitous for a bomb team with no scout car. What it does prove is that again I've been able to find potentially crucial evidence to support the families and witnesses in British military files which were completely missed by state investigators. A VCP operation clamp was called the minutes after the explosion as warranted by a major incident. These files also record British military observation posts or OPs in the days leading up to the explosion. As contested for many years by the families, there were OPs in or on the high-rise flats at the bottom of the new lodge, both sitting on top of the target gem bar and McGurk's bar. Each on Church Churchill House and Artillery House reported on suspicious vehicles and incidents in the days before the attack. There was also a static OP at Unity Flats covering the bottom of the Shankill Road in St Peter's Hill. Interestingly too, signals come from Red KP9, which I had to search for in British military files. KP is key point and Red denotes an important electrical installation which needed protection from the British Army. Even when I checked my files and discovered the KP Red 9 was in Great Patrick Street, and potentially manned by eight British soldiers and eight of McGurks, I still had to look for it as I never knew it existed. It was actually hidden in plain sight during the conflict and was an exceptionally important switch house and control room for the power of the city. It's the building housed in the Golden Thread Gallery today, close to where the bombers abandoned the car in 1971 and walked to St Anne's in sight of the OP. It will now be up to the British military to explain how or why they did not see anything the night of McGurks Bar explosion or why these OPs were abandoned. I know where to find that information, but the British Ministry of Defence has said that they cannot find the particular files. Nevertheless, I am publishing here, for the first time too, the discovery of a covert British military ambush OP in the vicinity of McGurk's Bar. And it should be noted that we have long queried the existence of a covert British military operation in the area that night. Only that there was an accidental discharge added a few hours before the explosion, we may not have known about it. It is partially redacted and did not get reported in the usual brigade logs as it should have been. This tells me the proper reporting procedure was not followed or brigade was informed by another channel such as the secret signal. I have asked the British Ministry of Defence for further information about the exact location in York Street for this offensive British military OP as it could have had sight of the target area and indeed escape route of the bombers. As an offensive operation was indeed expected that night, that would explain a military out of bounds or OOB for the area as we have again long argued. What that operation was is obviously essential. Who manned the ambush OP could be critical too. If it was the resident battalion to RRF, we might expect a call sign reporting it and a subsequent message to brigade from the battalion. None is given. This message is at company level to tactical headquarter level and redacted. 
The last surveillance intercept and ambush OP in the area was the night before using the MRF. So I have proved they were already deployed in the area around that time and working on similar operations with to RRF. Historic investigators had told our families for years that there were no British soldiers in the area at all and definitely no special forces. They were wrong. If we look at the map of the area, you can see that the target Jambar and McGurk's Bar was overlooked by Churchill House and Artillery House. Glenravel and Unity are there too. The bombers sat in a strange car under the noses of the British military who were looking for suspicious vehicles and people in the aftermath of bomb warnings and escaped prisoners. The ambush OP is somewhere close by along York Street and potentially covering the same area and escape route. The car is then abandoned close to KP Red Line and the bombers walk within sight of the OP. So after being told for nearly half a century that there were no British troops in the area, we now see that within half a kilometre the area is potentially surrounded by British military with a covert offensive British Army operation in the vicinity of McGurk's Bar. We now know too from these files that the British Army had indeed logged suspect cars in the area before and after the bomb explosion. We would expect that from OPs covering the area even if a British military out of bounds was in place to accommodate the ambush OP. The IUC on York Road reported a green cortina outside the police station minutes before. A green cortina is reported in the minutes after the bomb, driving in the same area. Two anonymous calls were made about a green cortina or Viva, which looks similar, in the minutes after the explosion. This is potentially the car which was supposed to pick up Campbell but fled the scene. The following morning, the British Army log information given to an officer at the scene by a local who didn't want to give his name. The information he gave about a two-tone car and the bomb matched what we later learned from the paperboy. Neither the inquest, the historic investigations, nor families were told of this corroborating evidence, which also named the target too. A number of absolutely critical files following the attack are missing. I queried this and the British Ministry of Defence has told me that it does not know what has happened to them. Nevertheless, if we look at the file before missing files which would have covered the sighting of a suspect vehicle and the escape of the bombers, we can make out the carbon imprint of the missing file beneath. Battalion headquarters and call sign 19 report immediately, which tells me that there was indeed overwatch of the area. You will also note the faded copy of a missing log sheet. And if you look above serial 40, you will discern missing serial 52 minutes after the explosion. Call sign 19, it appears, reports, quote, black car with headlights on went into the city centre with three. It ends behind the page we have. This suspect vehicle leaving the scene in the direction of the bomber's escape has never been made available to the families or historic investigators. The British Ministry of Defence alleges it has lost the file, but we have recovered this critical evidence nonetheless. I'd also expect to find out about the recovery of the abandoned vehicle in the missing files, which may be another reason why they are missing. We know of course that a car was recovered and examined, as we have this snippet of a fingerprint ledger, which tells us that two prints were recovered from the car used in explosion Great George Street. This car disappeared from the investigation and the inquest was not told about it. So. Who lied and who created the McGurk's bar lie? 
What was its origin? I have tracked it back to within a few hours of the explosion and its origin lies in collusion between the British Army and Royal Ulster Constabulary. At 1am, just over four hours after the attack and before all of the victims had been identified, including my own grandmother, the brigade commander informed his staff and headquarters in Northern Ireland that the RUC have a line that the bomb in the pub was a bomb designed to be used elsewhere, left in the pub to be picked up by the provisional IRA. Bomb went off and was a mistake. RUC press office have a line on it and I should deal with them. This we now know and they knew then was an egregious, heinous lie that attempted to criminalise innocent civilians. It is the reason why our families have had to fight and claw for scraps of truth and justice from the British table for nearly half a century. Who was the brigade commander though? Well, he was the same person who had revamped the British military's information and psyops units and had deployed the killer gang, the military reaction force, onto the streets of Belfast. It was the same person who wrote on the very day of the McGurk's Bar explosion, it is likely that having fined down the enemy organisations to the extent we have done, future successes will be increasingly hard to achieve from an operational point of view unless we are able to make our own organisation very much more efficient. As you know, we are taking steps to do this in terms of building and developing the MRF and we are steadily improving the capability of Special Branch. His name was Brigadier Frank Kitson. So, General Sir Frank Kitson does indeed have his dirty fingerprints all over the McGurk's Bar cover-up. We have the proof. There it is. That's why we demand a new investigation which questions him under caution immediately and before he dies. His stature and his guilt and the guilt of the RUC tells you why the British state and the PSNI are fighting our families tooth and nail for even a semblance of truth and justice. This battle has taken a tremendous toll on all of our families, on their physical and mental health. And yet the British state is failing and we will prevail. My name is Kieran McArch. I am the grandson of John and Kathleen Irvine. Thank you very much for watching this short seminar and thank you very much to Fela and Fubble for giving me the opportunity to engage with your good selves. If you want to carry on this conversation, you can connect with me on www.mcgurksbar.com or on social media at McGurksBar. Thank you very much.